uh, find our seats. And as our practice and tradition, would you please uh, stand with me as we read God's word? Mike will be preaching out of Mark chapter 6 this morning, but I will be reading out of Psalm 139. Psalm 139. starting in verse 1 through 16. Psalm 139, 1 through 16. Let's pray. Lord, as you reminded us uh, this morning through uh, Brian's healing that the the very breath of life um, that we have comes from you and we are thankful for um, all that you give us, all that you have provided for us, and especially, Lord, for your word, for your written word, for your preached word. Lord, I pray that you would give Mike uh, clarity and um, power and um, unction in his preaching this morning, and Lord, may we receive it. Uh, with with open hearts and open minds and and apply it to our lives in christ's name we pray amen so as you know at the end of the scripture reading i always say um lord um thank you for this word and thank you that um you've given it to us and of course your response is Thanks be to God. So let's hear it this morning, shall we? All right. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be my night, even the darkness is not dark for, to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you have formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written 
every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. It is a common practice of Jesus to ask his followers to do what is seemingly impossible. Apart from his grace, apart from his power, apart from his strength, Jesus regularly during his ministry asks the disciples and by extension he asks us to do what is seemingly impossible. Give you a a couple examples of this. In Matthew chapter 18 Peter encounters Jesus. You're familiar with this passage, many of you. It's where Peter asked Jesus, how many times shall I forgive my brother? And when he approaches Jesus and asks this question, how many times shall I forgive my brother? He says, shall I forgive him seven times? And you have to know that the operational theology of the day was that uh, you forgive your brother, your neighbor, your uh, whomever, three times, and then, you're, and then you're basically off the hook. That was the, the practical theology of the Pharisees, as it were. So if my neighbor comes and steals my mountain bike, uh, I forgive him, and I get a new one. And then he comes and steals my mountain bike again, and I forgive him. And then the third time, he steals the same neighbor, my third mountain bike, I forgive him. But the fourth time... I bring the attorneys out, and debtor's prison is where you go, and forgiveness is is no more. This was the operational theology in Jesus' day. This is what was expected and what was practiced amongst the Jews. And so Peter comes to Jesus and says, how many times shall I forgive my my brother, my neighbor, whoever sins against me? And he, he doubles it and adds one and says all the way up to seven times. You see, Peter knows that Jesus is expecting another level of righteousness, another level of of life commitment to God. And so is it up to seven times that I should forgive? And you know Jesus' response. What does he say? What does he say? Seventy times or seventy times seven. He says, no, it's not seven times. You see, this is something seemingly impossible. Jesus communicates to Peter, you are to forgive that person who sins against you in the exact same way over and over and over again without limit. Why is that? Because the Lord Jesus has forgiven you and me as we sin in thought and word and deed over and over and over again. He forgives us. Is that good news? And so we are to forgive others over and over and over again because that is what Christ has done for us. So today's message is not about forgiveness, but it is about doing the impossible that God asks us as his followers to seemingly do the impossible. This is just one example. Now we're going to look and go through and continue our journey through the Gospel of Mark today. And in today's chapter is this event of the feeding of the 5,000. Again, uh, a passage that many of you are familiar with. If you're not there, you can go ahead and turn there now or uh, get the Bibles in front of you. If you don't, didn't bring a Bible today, go ahead and grab a Bible in front of you. We're going to be in Mark 6. And as we, tr- as we go through this passage today in Mark 6, 
we're going to see again Jesus ask his followers to do something that is seemingly impossible. And the impossible thing here is to feed 5,000, more than that, we'll see the details in a moment, to feed them out of five loaves and two fish. He tells the disciples to feed them. We're going we're to look at this. This is the impossible thing. Now today is also Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. You see this on the screen uh, above me. For those of you that are visiting or are not familiar with that, let me just introduce you to that. We're going to apply this passage in the realm of Sanctity of Human Life Sunday after we go through it. Churches all over America have designated either last Sunday or this Sunday or some Sunday in January near the anniversary of the landmark decision of Roe versus Wade to take a stand for the sanctity of human life. And this is a very personal and passionate thing for me for many different reasons, but one of them I'll just share with you briefly goes back about 16, 17 years ago. I was at a conference in, in Minneapolis, and the Lord was just working on me in a very, very significant way. And I made, if you will, a vow or a covenant or a promise to the Lord that instead of just skipping over this issue, this issue that includes abortion and includes now physician-assisted suicide at the end of life in California, this issue that we would rather just skip over, I made a vow or a promise to the Lord, if you will, that I, I will speak or preach or do whatever I can at least once a year to speak on this because the scriptures tell us that we have a responsibility to defend the oppressed and the weak. You see, I believe that the greatest sin against humanity is when those who are strong, those who are powerful, take advantage of those who are weak. And the greatest sin against humanity that we have going on in our land is against those that are in the womb who are denied the right to live. They have no voice. And so it is our responsibility to speak on their behalf. You see, humanity does not begin at a certain weight. In some states, they want to say a, a baby in the womb becomes a baby at 500 grams. It does not, a, a baby in the womb does not become a baby at, at a certain age or gestational period. But God knits together a baby in the womb. This is the framework of the scriptures. This is the framework of God. This is why Jim read Psalm 139 today, where David, the psalmist, cries out, for you created my inmost being. This intimate cry and prayer to God from David that can be ours as well and should be ours. You, Father, knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So, we're going to go through this passage. We're going to see God's calling us to do things that are impossible. And one of the things I'm going to suggest that he's calling us to do that is impossible is to minister in this san- from the sanctity of human life perspective that we are made in the image of God, every human being. And we are in a very difficult and in California virtually an impossible place apart from God's power to live out and protect and defend life and love uh, human beings. So this is what we're going to do today. Uh, and I often go to a different passage, but today we're just going to continue on our journey through the Gospel of Mark. So let's go through this now, and then we're going to apply it in this realm of sanctity of human life. So Mark chapter 6, hopefully you're turned there already. You'll be able to follow along with me much better if you're there. Mark chapter 6, and beginning at verse 30. Let me read the first couple verses here. 
the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Now, let me just kind of set the stage here in Mark's gospel for where we are. Uh, how many of you here were, were here last week and heard Neil uh, preach? A few of you were, were here last week and a lot of folks uh, not, not with us this morning. But Neil preached this flashback passage uh, re- regarding John the Baptist. So Mark is kind of going back in time, last Sunday's passage, and talking about John the Baptist. So today, where we pick up is from the previous sermon, where Jesus has just sent the 12 out two by two. He sent them out in pairs to do ministry. And that's where we pick up in verse 30. So they have now gathered, they have come back around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. And they have done all of these things in, this, in these pairs as he sent them out. And then there's these overwhelming crowds that we see in verse 31 to where the disciples don't even have a chance to eat. And I love the heart of Jesus. He says to the 12, he says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Jesus knows that his disciples, both the original 12 and us, that we need some rest. We need to get away. Uh, I don't know about you, but I think it is important for us to have special places that we go to get away for rest. Anybody have some special places that you go? Raise your hands. A few of you, two of you do. Uh, You know, our family has a special place, and we've gone there. uh, It's along a river called Fordyce Creek up in the Sierra. We've been camping there since our children were in uh, playpens, and we've hiked in there with baby diapers and all that kind of stuff, and we still go there. Pastor Adam and I, uh, pre- my previous colleague in ministry here, he and I have spent time up there. It's a place where, where I go that is very remote, and I've gone there alone just with my dog and spent time with the Lord when I need to search my soul or just need to be alone and fish and enjoy. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Um, not this time of year, not accessible. I'm describing this so that you can see the heart that Jesus has for his 12 who have just been out ministering around Nazareth. They're exhausted and they're overwhelmed and they're reporting all this news and Jesus says, you need some rest. He cares for us that we get rest, that we go to special places, that we go to a quiet place, we go to a place in the wilderness of the country and we get some rest. But look what happens, verse 33. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them, and ran on foot from all the towns, all the towns, all the communities, and got there ahead of them. Now, these are some fast people, okay? We're talking about this lake, the Sea of Galilee. They're getting in a boat. They're just a straight line across the lake, and these people are traveling the circumference of the lake from all of these towns, and they get there ahead of them. You know, almost every sermon, with the exception, every passage in Mark's gospel, every sermon I've preached, apart from the week where they're in Nazareth, almost every sermon could have a central proposition, a central message of the incredible power and magnetism of Jesus, that he draws people to himself and his disciples do as well. And we see this here in this text as well. So they're going to go to this isolated place to get rest, but the crowds beat them there. Look at verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, 
He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So again, we see the heart of Jesus here. He has compassion for his 12 and he wants to get them rest. But what takes priority? What takes priority or the spiritual needs of the lost take priority over the spiritual rest of his laborers in the vineyard? Do you see that, church? Rest is important to us. But when people are desperate for Jesus and for the gospel, and here, thankfully, there's this revival and awakening happening because of Jesus' teaching and preaching, they know it, that we drop what we're doing and we go to those needs. So rest is not to be found. It's going to be found later. So he began teaching them, it says in verse 34, many things. He began teaching them many things. Verse 35, by this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. The disciples are concerned. There is this enormous crowd of thousands and thousands of people who've made it to this remote place where people go to get away from everyone. And there's no food. There's, there's, how, how is this going to work? And here we have in verse 37, Jesus' response and really our theme for today. Where Jesus says to the twelve, you give them something to eat. Jesus is asking his followers to do the impossible. He is asking us, his followers today, to do impossible things as well. He is asking us to make fishers of men. The message of the Gospel of Mark, the mission out of the Gospel of Mark, is that we are to be disciple makers. We cannot do this. It is impossible apart from God's empowering work of the Holy Spirit. So this is just kind of crazy. You give them something to eat, he says. Put yourself in their shoes. Thousands and thousands of people, you give them something to eat. So let's look at the dialogue here, what happens. So they said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? I mean, they they just don't even know what to do here. This, This is outrageous. Verse 38, how many loaves do you have? He asked, go and see. So at this point, they probably go back to the boat, right? They go to their igloo cooler where they've got their their beer and their hot dogs, right? Can I say that? They've got their stuff in the boat. Go and see what you have. You got sub sandwiches in there or you got salad. What do you have? So, so they probably leave. They go to the boat. doesn't say that explicitly. That's, that's probably what, what's going on here. So they get there. They grab the cooler. When they found out, they said five and two fish, five loaves of bread and two fish. Verse 39. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Mark's giving the reader here a clue. This is an enormous crowd. He hasn't told us the number yet. You guys have read your Bibles, so you know. But this is an enormous crowd. They're sitting in groups of hundreds and fifties. Verse 41, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. This is powerful imagery, folks. Imagine being in this remote location. God, who was there in the beginning, who created the universe, is is standing there. He takes the five loaves and the two fish, 
And he looks up to heaven and he gives thanks and he breaks them. He is the one. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the one that will give you strength to do what is impossible. This is powerful. This imagery is just unbelievable. Verse 41, Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The disciples were the waiters, if you will. They were the busboys. And they pick up 12 basketfuls of this. And then we're told at the very end of this section, verse 44, the number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. The Greek word here for men is the Greek word andres. It's not anthropos, which can be translated humanity or men and women and children, all the people. This is a specific word for men. So this isn't explicit, but likely what's going on here is we have a segregated congregation. And there were 5,000 men and likely 5,000 women. Actually, more than that. There's always more women in church than there are men, right? So let's say there's 5,000 men and 7,000 women because they are more godly. They're there, and there's probably 10,000 children. I mean, this is a massive crowd. To give you some perspective, Capernaum, the town from archaeological research, we have a a guesstimate there's about 2,500 people in Capernaum. So all the people from all the towns around the Sea of Galilee are there for this meal. It's an astonishing thing. Now, what I think God wants us to see in reading this passage is we don't have any indication in this passage that the people necessarily understood the miracle of the loaves. They are understanding, they are on their way to understanding that this is no ordinary prophet, that this is no ordinary rabbi. The message, the illogical message of the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus is the Son of God. And I think they are getting that message now. But as far as the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, my reading of this passage is that the only ones that have really seen this are the disciples. I mean, thousands, 10,000 plus people, they they, they didn't see exactly what's going on. They're just hungry and and they got the food. But the disciples on obedience went to the boat, went to the cooler, got the fish, got the bread, brought it back, and Jesus supplies the power to do the work that they need to do. This passage is for us as followers to see that God helps us to do the impossible things that he calls us to. So now, I want to transition and spend the rest of our time in application. So we read a passage like this, and we should not just be dismissed and and go home after what I've done now. We've understood the passage. We've studied the passage. But we have to say, God, how would you have me respond in obedience to a passage like this? So we should be asking a question like, what is it that is impossible that you have asked me to do? And I don't know what it is that God has put on your heart that might involve discipleship ministry, might involve loving your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors, the enemy down the street, whomever. I don't know. But, but you need to be asking, God, what is it that, that you have called me to do that is impossible, that I need to rely upon your spirit and grace to do?
And, and we could apply this passage in a million different directions. There's one interpretation of every passage of Scripture, one correct interpretation, but there are thousands or millions of applications. And so what I want to do now is shift gears and apply this passage in the context of sanctity of human life. Because we live in, in a, what can I say? I, I don't like to use words, but I mean, we, do we live in a liberal state? Do we live in a liberal, are you guys awake today? We, we live in a state, and when I say liberal, I mean a state that is opposed to the truths of the gospel and the truths of God's word. And we are yet called to make disciples and to be salt and light here. We live in a state that does not, in a culture that does not value the sanctity of human life. When, we use this, when I use this phrase, sanctity of human life, there's a lot of theology and a lot of scripture behind that phrase, going back to the early chapters of Genesis that says that human beings are made in the image of God. And so going back to what I said at the beginning of the sermon, when the strong oppress the weak, and the worst thing that happens when the strong kill weak human beings, they are not only offending those human beings that they're oppressing, but they're offending God because human beings, unlike every other creature on earth, is made in the image of God. So, I want to apply this passage in the context of, of sanctity of human life. But what we have in our culture, in our secular culture, outside the church, is what I would call the sanctity of human choice. Human life isn't valued as it should. Human life is not viewed as being made in the image of God. Human life is viewed as a genetic mutation that has happened by random chance, and we happen to come about through the process of evolution. This is what is understood by many in our culture. And so what has happened is instead of human life being viewed as valuable and sacred and holy and sanctified, we have the sanctity of human choice, which is another way of saying that the idol of our culture is the idol of self. That human beings get to do whatever they want, and that in this day and age, in our state, includes taking the life of babies in the womb and now taking the life of those who are suffering at the end of life through physician-assisted suicide. So let me give you a little background here before we have three points of of application about the sanctity of human choice. I'm doing this so that we understand the culture so that we can be more effective to make disciples. So bear with me here. If you think for a moment I'm getting political, I'm not, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to look like that. So the reason we have sanctity of human life at this time of year goes back to the decision Roe v. Wade, which the, the case was argued earlier, but was decided January 22nd, 1973. What's the date today? Ah, oh, so I... Hey, I planned this out pretty good, didn't I? I actually just realized that now. Um, most churches did it last week, I think. Is that right, Barb? I think most churches did it last week. So we're doing it on the right day. This is really a sad day. Um, here is, this is a quote from the decision, okay? From the Supreme Court justices. State criminal abortion laws violate the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, which protects against state action the right of privacy, including a woman's qualified right to terminate pregnancy. So if you didn't understand what that's saying, what it's saying is in 1973, abortions were already legal and happening in California. But in some states like Texas, where this case originated, 
abortion was illegal. And so this woman sued. And so the court decided that it is illegal for a state to have a criminal abortion law. That's what this landmark decision was. Now, the astonishing thing is that this was based on the right uh, to privacy, on the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. We're getting a little um, American history here, but just, just bear with me. You guys all read the 14th Amendment before you came to church today, right? You guys all got this, got this down? Okay, in case you didn't, let me just give it to you briefly here, okay? All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of the citizens of the United States. Here's the important part. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Here's the irony of this landmark case. You guys notice when this was handed down? When this 14th Amendment was written? What was going on? African Americans who had been slaves were now free. But what was happening is they were being killed. They were still being enslaved. They were being denied the opportunity to own property. And so the 14th Amendment is saying no state can deprive The context of when it was written was African Americans who were formerly slaves can deny a person life, liberty, or property. So in 1973, the Supreme Court found inside of that clause the right for women to kill babies in their womb. Is that crazy? That phrase, deprive any person of liberty, So this, if you will, demonic idea of the sanctity of human choice was read into the 14th Amendment, and now we have it illegal in all 50 states. Illegal to prohibit abortion. So here's, let me make, uh, clarify here what I'm, what I'm trying to say, I'm not trying to get political because I want to say very clearly, and Neil, I only listened about half of Neil's message last week, but Neil said a similar thing last week. And so let me repeat kind of what he said. If you leave today thinking that I preached a political message today, then I either failed as a communicator or you misunderstood me. So let me be very clear. Although I think it is possible and likely, and I hope it happens, that in the next year or two, this landmark decision is reversed. I hope that happens in the next year or two. Okay, but that is not what I'm wanting to emphasize today. Because even when it, is in, when it is reversed, Lord willing, in the next year or two, abortions are going to continue in California because of this ideology of the sanctity of human choice. So the solution, church, to this problem of the sanctity of human choice is not the Supreme Court. As much as I want it to be reversed, as as other terrible landmark cases have been reversed throughout history, I hope this one is, but that's not the solution. That is not the answer to the problem that we have. The answer to the problem that we have is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The taking of human life in our state is only going to stop as the gospel spreads 
and people return to a biblical framework of life. And that is our responsibility, not the responsibility of the Supreme Court in Washington. And it is certainly not the responsibility of those who, I'm not sure who, but our neighbors have elected that are in Sacramento. So, where am I here? Are you guys with me? Okay. So here, application. I want to finish up here. Three points of application. I'm, I'm coming from this passage that, is, that generally is telling us we need to rely on God to do the impossible. And I'm saying one way to apply this passage today is to love someone who wants to end his own life or her own life. Now, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, and, and I'm saying this because this is increasingly going to be common as our culture ages and we have physician-assisted suicide in our state. You are going to know people who are suffering near the end of life. Those of us who spend a lot of time in hospitals, you can understand why they might want to end their own lives, the suffering and the pain that they go through. What I'm saying is one way to apply this passage is that you are going to rely upon God's power to come along someone who is suffering near the end of life, who has chronic illness, and you're going to come aside and love them. Are you going to share the gospel with them? Yes. Are you going to talk to them about the sanctity of human life? Yes. But even if they are rejecting everything that you're saying, that you will love them up until the end and pray that they would change and repent before they die. This is part of the culture that that, that we have in in our state. This is just a summary of it from a Los Angeles Times article, uh, a summary of what we have going on about the end of life. The Medical Association says patients who are at least 18 years old with the capacity to make medical decisions may request an aid in dying drug as long as their attending physician as the consulting physician have diagnosed a terminal disease that is expected to result in death within six months. So this is happening now. I was just on the phone a couple weeks ago with a believer I mentioned it, those of you that were here a couple weeks ago, she traveled a long distance to come along this friend, uh, this friend who was ending her life this way. This is against the scriptures and the value of a human life that is made in the image of God. You and I do not have the right to take our own life, and even more so, we do not have the right to take a life of someone else. Both are wrong. Taking the life of someone else is even more deplorable than taking your own life. So come alongside. Be ready to come alongside someone that's in this scenario. Are you hearing me, church? Okay, so second point. Second point, love someone who wants to end life yet in the womb. Love them. Love them. I have encountered many, many people from teenagers, unwanted pregnancy, to mothers who, ha- who are married and have three or four children who have unwanted pregnancy. Over my years, I have encountered many people who want to end the life for various reasons of the baby in their womb, and they need us to love them. And they need us to love them all the way through to the end. Shall we share the gospel with them? Yes. Shall we explain to them the sanctity of human life? Yes. But if they are not with us, we need to continue to love them all the way through, even should it happen to the end of that process. So love someone. Who is, who is wanting to end life that is still in the womb. And then finally, and we'll finish up with this today, we have, this is an overwhelming subject. This is not a subject that, it is an important subject to preach on, but it is one that is very difficult, and I understand that, and not all of us are going to be engaged and involved in this 
in, in, a, in a frontline sort of way. So that's why each year um, on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, we have folks from various pregnancy centers or, or we, whatever we uh, call them now, uh, life clinics. I don't know. We kind of change our, our language of what we call these places. But churches um, have joined together with, in a cooperative way to have places where people who are in crisis and pregnancy can come. And we want to support or join those on the front lines. And one that we have connected with over the years is now called Sierra Pregnancy and Health. And I'm going to ask Barb to come, come on up here uh, right now. Barb is representing this uh, center for us today. Barb and I go way back. You find your way up here. Some steps over there. Sorry. It's kind of Barb and I go way back. We have done these uh, Sanctity of Human Life Sundays now for nearly 20 years, going all the way back to when I was in Cool. And for those who maybe aren't even familiar with what Sierra Pregnancy and Health does, why don't you just share briefly an overview of what happens there? Okay. Sierra Pregnancy and Health is um, a pregnancy resource center, and a lot of you may have known it as New Life Pregnancy Center because we were here in Auburn for about six, seven years, and then we were down at... Uh, across the street from Sierra College on Sierra College Boulevard. And now presently we have our office on the corner of Coloma and uh, Sunrise Boulevard. We're actually about a half of a block away from the Planned Parenthood there. So the center is open to encourage women and men who come into the office to really evaluate the life of that baby that's in their womb and to be open to be able to help them to see that there's support and that they do not go through with an abortion. So we are now also a medical clinic, which means we can do ultrasounds. And so that's a big step because probably about 95% of women, when they see that little heart that is beating, which it beats actually after 21 days of life, and they see that little wiggling that's going on within inside them, they choose life. So it's been a really a neat transition. So now we have a couple of nurses on staff that will be doing uh, ultrasounds. And so we are now advancing to maybe even do further uh, health care for the women. So one of the things that we can do, these guys are passing around baby bottles right now, and some people are going, are we uh, expecting a... a, a outbreak of babies into the church today what's going on um so so those of you that don't know what's going on these baby bottles are just one way that we can support those that are on the front lines these centers need funding and so as churches we uh, support these centers as places of refuge of places of hope of places that believe in the sanctity of human life so i want to encourage you to take one of these bottles home with you it serves as a reminder to pray for these folks that are working down there and it's also a place you can put coins or checks or thousand dollar bills or whatever you have in there and we'll be collecting those again in a few months and we'll be sending all those funds uh down there barb what are what is another way or two of folks that might want to um perhaps explore more about how to be involved at uh sierra pregnancy and health okay. uh what's well, just mention one or two ways okay. uh, they could well, be involved number one of course is prayer we know that god is the one who changes hearts and then the other thing too of course is staffing uh the Office is mainly staffed by volunteers, and it is such a rewarding place to serve. You can just be there, and uh, God will send in the clients, and you're trained on how to really to meet with them, to talk with them, and 
so that's another great big need that's always needed. Uh, there's positions on the board. There's always uh, things that are needed to be done. We've got a banquet actually coming up February 23rd. So you can attend that, or you can even volunteer to help set up, take down, to just be there, to be the hands and the feet of that. But that's another interesting way. And I think most anything that's the most important is to be a voice, to be a voice out there in the community, just knowing that, hey, there's a place down in, Ro in Roseville that can help you out. And, you know, you guys are out and about in the community, and that's probably one of the biggest things of anything is to be a voice. One last question for you, Barb. So one of the things I've heard as I engage people from the world and critics mm -hmm. of, of what we're doing, of what we've said this morning, they say, yeah, all you seem to care about is the baby. Um, you, you, you Christians, you uh, haters or whatever they want to call us, mm -hmm. uh, all, all, all you care about is the baby. So what would be your response to the center of, um, of, of, that, of that criticism? How, how, how is that refuted by what you do? It definitely is uh, not the truth. We definitely do care about the baby, but we care about the baby's parents more than anything. And so um, at the center, it's, everything is set up that way to let the mom and the, and the dad know that we were there for them. We try to meet their needs, and we meet their needs not even uh, just with kind of counseling them through, but we also have uh, ways that we can help them in a great program that's called Earn While You Learn. And they can get all the information they need to know about how to take care of themselves, how to take care of that baby as the baby has come out of the womb, and for different parenting classes, but they also can learn, earn all the diapers that they need, baby layout items, and um, just we even actually give them a $50 gift certificate when they've earned it after about six, seven weeks of just coming into for the class. So we are geared not only for that baby, we are geared for that for mom and dad to be mm -hmm. able to raise that baby. What I was getting at is in the unfortunate situation where a life is taken, do you stand with that mom? Okay. Do you do you continue? What 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 what, yep. what happens there? Yeah, we sure do. And sadly, a lot of women have gone through that. And sadly, we are up to about sixty million babies that have lost. So that's a that's a huge number. And we don't judge anyone who's gone through that. We're not in their shoes. And for some reasons, there's a lot of pressure on the women to maybe go through with the uh, act of abortion. And but we are there to counsel them to show them that hey. You can be forgiven. There is grace, and it's all in Jesus Christ. So we have a, a great program with that, too. Post-abortion. Thank yeah. you very much, uh, Barb. Thanks for being here today. As she returns to her seat, let's stand together. And as you stand, the worship team's going to come. I want to pray before we continue to sing. So let's, uh, let's bow our heads again as the worship team comes, and let's join our hearts in prayer. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your grace and your mercy. We're thankful that Jesus' death on the cross was not just an example of love, but it was a death in our place as our sin substitute. That Jesus died for the sin of anger and the sin of lust and the sin of greed and the sin of abortion. And the blood of Jesus has covered all of every kind of sin that we can think of. And Lord, right now I just want to emphasize that Jesus' blood covered that sin of abortion as 
one in three women by the age of 45 in America have had an abortion. There are many women here today, Lord, who have had abortions. And I pray that they would, that they would know that their sin has been forgiven by Jesus. It is such good news, the gospel. Lord, I pray now that we also would respond to today's message, whether it's in the realm of sanctity of human life or whether it's in the other thousands of ways that we could respond in doing what you have asked us to do, that thing, something that's impossible to do apart from your spirit, that is to make disciples in a culture that, is, that, that views us as, as haters, Lord. Help us to love them by your power and by your spirit. In Jesus' name.